Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode on New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Dr. Jonathan Dill, Associate Professor of Modern Japanese Literature at Keio University in Japan. His new book, Haruki Murakami and the Search for Self-Therapy, Stories from the Second Basement, was recently published by Bloomsbury. This book looks into the threads of self-therapy in the novels by Murakami Haruki, one of the most prominent contemporary writers in the world. Uh, Welcome. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, Before we jump into the book, could you have tell us a bit about your research and your teaching, your work at Keio? Yeah, so I work here at Keio in the Faculty of Science and Technology uh, in the Department of Foreign Languages and Liberal Arts. Uh, So I'm here in Japan teaching uh, a lot of academic English, but also uh, literature courses to, to Japanese students. Uh, and the book that I'm yeah, talking about today uh, comes out of my PhD research that I did uh, in New Zealand at the University of Canterbury. Um, the, the thesis was also called Haruki Murakami and the Search for Self-Therapy. So this is something I've been thinking about uh, and working on for a long time. Nice. And uh, when did you first encounter Murakami Haruki's works? Uh, how did you become interested in this particular topic of self-therapy in his writings? Yeah, so it's a long time ago, and I, I kind of even wonder myself sometimes, you know, if, if my memory is right, that's probably a good theme for, for someone reading Murakami, but you know, the unreliability of memory. But I know when I was a, an undergraduate student at the University of Auckland, I kind of made it a task to kind of survey Japanese literature, modern literature uh, in English translation. And so um, if my memory is right, I think the, the first Murakami novel I ever read uh, was A Wild Sheep Chase. You know? And I, and I kind of remember thinking, you know, this was interesting. It was an interesting novel. Um, you know, I think it kind of reminded me a little bit of hardball detective fiction, which afterwards I learned was, was the case. But of, of course, with Murakami, it's the, the magic realist kind of element to it that kind of grabs you. And this is kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, I think my very earliest kind of interest in Murakami was more about why do the older authors and the older critics in Japan dislike him so much? You know, I think the, the first academic essay I ever wrote was kind of on that topic. Um, you know, and, and so it kind of started from that point, you know, why is he so threatening to so many older writers? But over time, I, I think I became interested in this topic of self-therapy uh, because Murakami himself talks about it. You know, he, you know, he said, you know, there's a very famous discussion that he had with the Jungian psychologist Kawai Hayao that, that probably many people have, have read. You know, and in that interview or that discussion uh, with Kawai Sensei, you know, he kind of said, why did I start writing? You know, I, sometimes I even wonder myself. But, but thinking back or looking back on it, I think it was about a search for self-therapy. So, you know, Murakami has made lots of comments that he writes as a means of self-therapy. And, and, and when you read the fiction, you kind of find similar comments, you know, uh, about, you know, writing and therapy. But then on the other hand, Murakami always says, I don't put much of my biography into my fiction. You know, this is all made up stuff. And and so there's, there's these kind of, and so it was difficult to make sense of, you know, what 
does this really mean, you know, self-therapy? And I kind of became interested in that question. Um, and then also, you know, kind of leading on from that, you know, I became aware that it felt to me quite Jungian, like I saw the influence of Jung very heavily in Murakami's fiction. But then, I, you know, again, you read the interviews and Murakami says, well, I don't read Jung. I don't know much about Jung. And so there's always these, you know, he gives you a little bit and then he takes something away and you're, you're always just trying to make sense of all these comments that he's made. And, and so I think that was just my original question is, you know, what does he actually mean when he talks about self-therapy? And I was trying to, to make sense of that. That's very interesting. I remember when I first read Murakami Haruki, I think I started with 1Q84. I also had the same question, what does he mean? And that's when I dropped the book. Um, and I was probably one of the people that didn't like him very much until I took a class with uh, Dr. Philip Gabriel. And uh, we actually, our channel featured another book that was about Murakami Haruki uh, just a bit while ago. And I see many um, overlapping um, points made in your book and the other book. So for our readers, uh, I mean listeners who are interested, uh, you can uh, please feel free to go back and check our other episode on Murakami Haruki. But uh, for Jonathan, I have um, this question for you to begin with. So many discussions on Murakami Haruki have focused on the historical background that influenced his writing, but you chose to examine his personal life and Despite that, and as you mentioned in the book, Murakami discourages his readers from looking into his life um, for clues about his fiction. So why does he say that, and why did you choose to um, examine his personal life? Yeah, so this was something that I wrestled with for quite a long time. And, and you know, if, in my original PhD, I don't really look that much at his personal life Um I guess at some point, you know, I mean, there are lots of interesting theories out there about, you know, why, you know, is Murakami a therapeutic writer? And of course, there is this kind of historical and sociological backdrop to understanding that question. You know, I think we we do live in a time that is, you know, a therapeutic time. And, and many people look to therapy as a way of making sense of their lives or, or working out problems in their lives. And there's, there's lots of ideas, you know, around Murakami's fiction, why it might have this therapeutic tone. You know, a lot of people look at, you know, the context of the 1960s and the student movement going on and, and the after effects of that, the disillusionment that came when that, that political movement failed. You know, other scholars have looked at the idea of, of the rise of a, a kind of a neoliberal society in, in Japan, you know, uh, as the society becomes more individualistic and capitalistic and people feel more stressed. You know, people turn to fiction for therapy. Uh, they, they turn to, to kind of regulate their emotions and their feelings uh, and things that are, that are going on. You know, other scholars have taken even broader perspectives and just looked at the idea of modernity per se, you know, the way that modernity kind of speeds up the, the pace of human life and the stresses that puts on us and as we move into a more kind of postmodern society, it's almost like we're living in a post-traumatic society, like we're living after this trauma of modernity and that Murakami perhaps uh, reflects some of that. So there's, there's lots of very interesting ideas out there. And I, I go through some of those in the introduction to the book and I'm, I'm influenced by them. And, but there came a certain point where to not look at the personal, it, it just didn't make sense. You know, I, I think we can write for all kinds of reasons. We can we're all parts of history, you know, uh, but at the same time, we have particular 
things that go on in our, our life. And I think the other thing that kind of pushed me more in that direction is that Murakami started to become a little bit more open about some of the personal reasons why he began uh, to write. The most famous example are the things he wrote about his father. You know, we know that his father uh, was a war veteran, that he spent um, you know, time in, in China during the war, that it was a very traumatic experience for him. Uh, that Murakami growing up in this home, he had to deal with a father who was just a little bit not satisfied with his life, perhaps, that he'd wanted to become a scholar, his father. He kind of wanted his son to become a scholar. There was a lot of tension in the home, you know, that Murakami eventually had to kind of make a break uh, with his parents, particularly after he got married. And I think, you know, the relationship with his parents was starting to affect his wife as well. And, and so he started to write, you know, uh, about some of this. And so we know a lot more now, you know, in the last several years about his relationship with his father. And so, you know, that's one obvious um, part of his biography that's, I think, important for understanding his fiction. And then the second kind of biographical point was uh, a girlfriend that he had had. And, and this was something that had been mentioned, you know, by some Japanese critics uh, in passing. Uh, there was a, a girl that he had known in high school and they, and they called her Kay. Um, and, you know, she had gone to uh, International Christian University, ICU, up here in Tokyo. And a year later, Murakami had gone to Waseda. Um, and if you kind of follow, you know, Murakami's um, travels around that time of his life, you know, we know that he started at, at Wakejuku at Waseda University in this dormitory where he was living. And then he moved out of the dormitory and eventually he moved to Mitaka. You know, he was living very close to ICU you know, where this girl was living, but he's never talked about her. And and so I became interested in this. Um, and I, I asked around to a lot of, you know, Japanese scholars and, and everyone kind of told me, well, you know, there's not a lot we know. Maybe after Murakami dies, a lot of this stuff may come out. But I kind of had a feeling like, you know, we're, we're kind of at a point of Murakami's life where there are people, of course, who, who knew Kay, who knew this, this uh, girl, um, but if, if we wait too long, we're going to lose, you know, all of this, um, you know, kind of experience that people have had. You know, I, I know in the case of Murakami's father, when I've tried to find people who know Murakami's father, you know, they're either dead now or they can't really, um, you know, sometimes their, their faculties have gone a little bit and, and it's hard to kind of get much out of them. So I think for Murakami's generation, you know, we're, we're in that period now where it's our final chance. And so, as I was working on this book, you know, um, I was in England at the time working on it. And I just thought, well, I've got to do the best I can. I think this biographical stuff, actually, I feel like it is important. And anyone who's read Murakami's fiction knows that there's this motif of this girl who commits suicide that comes up time and time again in his fiction. It's a, a theme he returns to all the time. And so I thought I'll do my best. And I did. I, I went to Kobe and I tried to talk to as many people as I could and uh, but I found some people who knew Kay and, and they were willing to share some of their memories with me. And so I was able to build a little bit more uh, of a picture about Kay. Um, and, and so, you know, once I'd kind of gathered all this, I also went to Murakami um, and I interviewed him again. The, the second time I'd had a chance to interview him and I, I talked to him about the stuff and said I was thinking of, of writing about it and asked him. And, and he just said, well, what I write is fiction. It's not fact. Um, that's all I can say about about this topic. So it's it's a very sensitive topic, you know. Uh, Kay still has siblings who are alive; they don't really want to talk about it. Um, 
But, you know, I just feel like there are these, you know, things that are driving Murakami's fiction that are very central to his fiction. And I think because I had settled on this theme of self-therapy, eventually, I think you just have to look at the biography. You have to kind of find out as much as you can. It just doesn't make sense to to reduce everything to, well, he's just responding to the 1960s or he's just responding to, you know, late capitalism or, you know, yes, he is responding to all those things, but he's also had some personal uh, traumas, you know, his relationship with his father, his relationship with this uh, woman, you know, these uh, have shaped his fiction, you know, and obviously what he's writing is fiction. Um, you know, he doesn't, you know, write uh, very tightly biographical fiction, but you know, I, I came to strongly believe that it has had an influence. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to deal with that the best that I could. I'm actually super interested in your process of um, that. It, it almost sounds like a detective game to me to, to track down all these people in his life and to talk to them and putting up the pieces. But I suppose that's for another time. Um, for now, I want to turn to the main um, topic of the book, which is the theme themes of um, therapy. So you mentioned, well, that your book is structured around the four threads that you identify. So what kind of self-therapy do you see in Murakami's writings? Yeah, so as I was reading the fiction and, and focusing on the fiction, you know, over time I came to organize it into four uh, therapeutic threads that I see woven through his fiction. You know, the first one is about this journey from melancholia into mourning. And and this is kind of borrowing from Freud. You know, Freud had some ideas, you know, saying that, you know, when we lose someone or when we lose something, an ideal or something that we had, you know, we mourn. Uh, we go through a lot of pain. It's this kind of withdrawal of this thing that we have loved in our life and that is now gone. Uh, but he also talked about the idea of melancholia, about times where we kind of we don't really know what we've lost anymore. It's kind of gone, and yet we feel sad. We just feel lost. We just feel like we're missing something. Uh, but 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 this is not a kind of a conscious process of mourning. It's more of an unconscious. You know, the, the, the thing is gone. We kind of feel like we should be over it, like life should be going on now, and yet we, f we just feel something, you know. And I think people who read Murakami's fiction, and particularly people who read his early fiction, will understand this, you know, a protagonist who's, who's just kind of, drifting through life on the surface. He doesn't seem to have any complaints. You know, he's got enough money to live, you know, but his life is just missing something, you know, and as you kind of go on, you know, these little things keep popping into his life, strange things that keep emerging. And, and we kind of realize over time that they're kind of connecting him back to losses that he's had in his past. Um, and they're kind of helping him to kind of go back from melancholia, to kind of break out of melancholia and to get back into mourning. Uh, and I think you see this particularly in the search for, you know, the lost girlfriend, you know, Naoko in the first, you know, um, Rat Trilogy, the early works of Norwegian Wood. Um, you know, I think you can also see it in Hardboard Wonderland and the End of the World. Um, and I think you kind of see a breakthrough in Dance, 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 where, you know, Boku, this first-person narrator who we've kind of got to know and over many works is finally kind of ready to break through this wall and to kind of try and connect with somebody, to break out of this melancholia and connect with someone who's waiting for him. And so you know, this is really the dominant theme, I think, of Murakami's early fiction, um, you know, this, this kind of 
these strange things. Sometimes it's a pinball machine, you know, sometimes it's something else, but just something grabs his heart one day and he doesn't understand it. But it's really a call from the unconscious saying, there's something you've forgotten. There's something you've lost. You need to bring it back into consciousness. You need to go back and and work on this thing, you know, and kind of bring it back uh, into kind of a conscious morning, which is which is what you need to kind of to process this this painful thing. The second thread uh, I write a lot about is this idea of intergenerational trauma, and and this obviously, you know, would connect with Murakami and his father. You know, I think it's fair to say that he did suffer some kind of intergenerational trauma from from that experience. But what you see in Murakami's fiction often is that when the protagonist goes out, you know, on his quest, he's questing for himself, you know, he's trying to find things himself, but there's often, you know, an older man, uh, often an older man that he's also trying to help at the same time. You know, I think if we think of a wild sheep chase, you know, we can think of the sheep professor, this grumpy old man, you know, in this hotel in Hokkaido, he has to kind of meet before he meets the sheep man, before he kind of resolves this quest. And, you know, after he's being on this this quest, he kind of goes back to the sheep man who reports. He says, you know, the sheep is now dead, you know. And and what this seems to come to is this idea of unfinished business. This older generation, you know, Murakami's father's generation, this wartime generation, they just seem to carry this burden, this unfinished business. And the Murakami protagonist goes out on these quests, um, and at the same time they're trying to help themselves, they're also trying to help, you know, this this older man and and to kind of save him and to kind of complete what he couldn't complete. And you see this coming up, you know, time and time again. You even see it in very recent fiction, you know, Killing Commendatore, you kind of see that similar motifs of of, uh, of this. The, the third thread is one that runs throughout Murakami's fiction. You know, it's the idea that a lot of his protagonists, you know, you can describe them as avoidant. And this is kind of coming out of the field of attachment studies. You know, and attachment studies looks at the way that we attach to our primary caregivers, to our mothers, to our fathers, you know, to our parents, to whoever raises us. Uh, and if we have a good relationship, you know, that creates a stable base for us as we move through life and helps us to have, you know, uh, stable relationships with other people. Uh, but, you know, for different reasons, you know, because those primary uh, relationships were not ideal, you know, people can have, um, you know, different attachment styles. And one of those attachment styles is, avoidance you know it's kind of the typical detached murakami protagonist someone who is not really connected to other people they they they, maybe they want to uh, or sometimes they downplay it they think it's not important you know Um, they've just got divorced or they've just got separated or you know they're they're just on their own and they're not really looking for anything or anyone but as you move through Murakami's fiction, you see this desire to connect. And I think this is kind of part of the reward of breaking out of melancholia, of, of working through mourning, is an ability to connect to other human beings and to have relationships with other human beings. And eventually even to um, have children. You know, And this takes a, a long, long time. You know, Murakami's early protagonists, they're all single men. They're all just on the edges of society. They all have relationships that come and go. But eventually, you know, you get to like 1Q84, Ichiku Hachiyon, and, you know, you have Aomame and Tengo who finally, you know, after they're, they're very avoidant style, you know, characters. They've both had traumatic childhoods, but they find each other. They decide they're going to give love a chance. They find out that, you know, Aomame is pregnant. 
and they decide to, you know, escape together and to, you know, start a new world. Or we have killing commendatore, you know, where we have, you know, the birth of a child at the end of the story and, and the protagonist, um, you know, this Watashi character who is willing to, um, you know, who, who's ready to be a father now, you know. And so I think you see that running through Murakami's fiction. This is kind of, I think, one of the rewards that you see uh, of this kind of therapy is is the ability to take on responsibility uh, and to become a parent. And the fourth and final therapeutic thread is, is probably the biggest one and the most challenging one, um, to, to uh, at least it's, it's challenging to describe briefly, but it's this idea of the search for individuation as a response to nihilism. Um, and I think, you know, this is a big question for Murakami. I think it's, you know, you mentioned your other podcast, this idea of existentialism in Murakami's fiction. I think it, it is very basic to his fiction. Um, you know, and, you know, personally, I think he's probably responding to a writer like Mishima Yukio or, or others, but he, he, nihilism is a big deal for him. This idea, is there any kind of meaning? Um, you know, where is meaning supposed to come from? Uh, and as he quests and as he goes on these different journeys, ultimately what he's searching for is, you know, some kind of meaning, uh, whether that's existential meaning, whether it's perhaps even a religious or spiritual meaning, you know, uh, you know, whether we want to call Murakami a post-secular writer, but he's questing. He is questing for something. Uh, and he's questing in a way that reminds me of Jungian individuation, this idea that, you know, we have an unconscious, uh, that we open ourselves to the unconscious, you know, that we meet our shadow, we meet our anima, we meet these different parts of ourselves that have been hidden to ourselves and, and, and we keep developing. Uh, and then I kind of argue that, you know, Jung talked a lot uh, later or in many parts of his career about alchemy, and he, he kind of felt alchemy, you know, this old ancient art of, or, or science or pre-science of, of trying to turn base metals into gold. You know, Jung saw this as a very fundamental psychological metaphor for what we tried to do. Um, and I argue that Murakami is very conscious, very aware of alchemy uh, in his more recent fiction and that he's using you know, metaphors from alchemy to kind of show this quest for individuation, this quest to turn, you know, the lead of depression, of despair, you know, into the gold of of hope, of optimism, of something positive that can move people forward, you know, that he wants to offer people in the face of tragedies, in the face of 311, in the face of the Kobe earthquake, in the face of the Om Shinriko attack, you know, this Om, this kind of sarin gas attack that was carried out on the Tokyo subway system. You know, these deeply traumatic events, um, you know, Murakami, I think based on his early experience of working through his own personal trauma, has then tried to kind of widen it and apply it to Japanese society more broadly and to kind of give a kind of a therapeutic message or to give hope to people who are facing, you know, deeply traumatic events. You know, and I think every age has their events. Um, and I imagine in the future, you know, we'll probably see Murakami's COVID novel or something we, you, you won't see it directly. It'll be hidden. It'll be disguised. But he'll be helping people you know, to work through the trauma of of these things that, that go on in our lives. So those are the, the four therapeutic threads that I trace in Murakami's fiction. And I see them partly resolved, but never completely resolved. You know, they usually once a thread is kind of resolved, it's, it still comes back from time to time. You know, it's not, um, you know, this, this kind of finished thing. 
Uh, but all four threads, they kind of get woven through, but this one of individuation is the one I think you can see from the beginning sustained right up to his most recent fiction. Now, many people have discussed um, the the influence from some Western writers on Murakami Haruki's writings. So uh, from your examination, do you think this search for self-therapy is um, something that he learned, well, I guess got or, or, or was influenced by Western writing? Or is it, do you think it's maybe unique in his own writings? Yeah, so I spend uh, a part of chapter one looking into this question. You know, there are, there are many people who write for self-therapy. You know, they, they write in a journal. They just write things down. There are many fictional writers who, I think, write for, for therapy, but not many of them become world-class writers, you know. So obviously, you know, there's, there's more than just writing. Um, you know, Murakami, like any good writer, was a reader well before he was a writer, and he read uh, a lot, you know, Um I think sometimes he underplays how much Japanese literature he actually read, but he knows a lot about Japanese literature. He's very deeply influenced. But we also know that, you know, during his high school years and university years, he read a lot of American fiction. You know, we know he loves Fitzgerald. We know he loves the hardball detective novels of Raymond Chandler. Uh, we also know, you know, he loved the, the great Russian novelists, you know, of the 19th century. You know, he loves Dostoevsky. He loves the brothers Kramazov, you know. So he's very well read. Um and, you know, I kind of argue for the way that his own therapeutic writing has been shaped, particularly by uh, Fitzgerald and by Chandler. You know, um, you know, The Great Gatsby, people know The Great Gatsby. And Murakami, that's his favorite novel of all time. He's translated it into Japanese. You know, you can see its influence throughout his fiction. But, you know, what we have in this novel is, you know, we have Nick Carraway. We have this first person narrator, like a Murakami novel, you know, who's, who's telling his story. And then he meets, you know, this great Gatsby. He meets Gatsby, this mysterious figure. And, you know, through trying to know Gatsby, he's also trying to know himself. And you know, I think in Murakami's fiction, you know, we always have this first-person narrator, but he starts to meet his Gatsby-like counterparts. You know, he starts off with his friend Rat, you know, Nezumi. And then, you know, later novels, we have characters like Gotanda and Dance, 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 you know, or, or we have these kind of antagonists that kind of become darker and darker as, as Murakami's fiction goes on. Um, but I think a lot of that was shaped by his reading of Fitzgerald um, and he, the way he kind of reads Fitzgerald in a very kind of psychological way. Uh, and then, you know, the other, you know, he also loved Raymond Chandler and the hard-boiled detective novels of, of Raymond Chandler, and, you know, very much influenced by I think he saw in Philip Marlowe, you know, this hardboard detective, again, another model of someone who doesn't really understand their trauma. They're, they're kind of suffering from melancholia, but they get these cases, you know, that something comes to him, these mysterious women appear in his life and say, you know, you need to help me solve this case. And the private detective goes out on this case. And, um, you know, but as he's going out, you know, we, if you kind of read it in a certain way, you can kind of read it as a kind of a therapeutic novel. Like he's, he's trying to help all these characters, but at the same time, he's trying to help himself. You know, he's trying to work through his own trauma through understanding, you know, other uh, characters in the novel. And, I, and you can kind of see that a little bit in Murakami. So, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, his reading in American literature, you know, his reading of Fitzgerald, of Raymond Chandler, um, 
And the other one I mentioned uh, a little bit later in the book is also Raymond Carver. You know, Ray, Raymond Carver uh, was a short story writer primarily and, and um, very, you know, Murakami was very influenced by him. Uh, he was also another alcoholic who kind of uh, used writing as therapy uh, and was able to turn his life around a little bit through writing, through the power of writing. And so what you kind of find in all of these writers that Murakami really deeply loves and, and, and reads over and over again are writers who are potentially self-destructive. There's something in their lives that's pulling them towards destruction, and yet they hold on to writing as this tool that can keep them alive, that can keep them going. Um, and you can even argue that you know, Murakami sensed this therapeutic potential in their fiction and kind of developed it and evolved it. Uh, and taken it to a place that, that, that they couldn't take it, that his fiction is perhaps more therapeutic than Fitzgerald's ever became, um, or that Raymond Chandler's ever became. You know, maybe Raymond Carver is an exception. You know, maybe Raymond Carver did find a similar therapeutic benefit from writing. Uh, Murakami has always been attracted to these writers who write because they need to write, because if they don't write, they could actually die. You know, they could actually destroy themselves. And it's kind of a dark image to have of Murakami. And on the surface, he doesn't seem like he's that type. He seems like a man who just enjoys his life, who has all the you know, enjoyments of life, music and good food and, and all these wonderful things, and just seems to be satisfied with life. Uh, and yet, I think when we read his fiction, we do sense a kind of a more desperate side and a darker side that he's trying to save and trying to rescue uh, through the process of writing. Very interesting. And it sounds, um, the desperate part at least sounds a lot like academic writing for me. <laughs> um, so your book is in general structured um, surrounding these voice themes and throughout the chapters you kind of um, go into individual novels in detail and discuss how these themes are um, are, are, are uh featured um, or, or come across in the book. Now, I don't want to give out too much of your analysis of all the novels um, in the whole book, but I do want to, for very selfish purposes, just focus on two of the chapters, perhaps. So chapter three features um, one of my favorite Murakami novels, uh, The Wind Up Bird Chronicle. And for this chapter, you discuss... Um, um, the 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 therapeutic breakthrough, and you consider um, you consider it the most powerful in the Wind Up Bird Chronicle and uh, South of the Border. So why do you think that? And can you kind of uh, give us a bit of more detail of your discussion on these two works? Yeah. So what's interesting about these two novels is they actually started out as the same writing. Um, project, you know, that Murakami started to write this long novel, and then it, it broke into these two separate novels. Um, and then, you know, south of the border, uh, you know, we, west of the sun, we, we kind of have this protagonist who has um, hurt some people in his past, but has trying to move on. Uh, but he feels like maybe there's some resentment that's held against him. Um but he's just doing his best, and, and he's he's kind of moving on, and he's got married, and, you know, he's he's opening these kind of jazz bars, and, you know, he has a very prosperous life and a very happy life. Um, but then one day, uh, this girl from his past, you know, reappears, um, shows up at the bar one night, and, you know, this is a girl that he 
really loved, you know, that he was like a, his childhood soulmate. Um, and, you know, without giving too much away, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of borrowing here from um, Kato Norihiro and others, but, but, you know, I kind of read it as this ghost story um, that, you know, this girl has kind of come back in a different form. She's really someone else. Uh, and she's come back to take her revenge, you know, on this uh, man who hurt her in the past. And, and, you know, it takes them a long time to realize this. Um, so, but it is a kind of a novel that deals, you know, with, I guess, the, you know, the, the things we do in our younger days that we later regret, you know, the people we hurt, um, you know, wishing that we can just move on. Uh, but this idea of perhaps like karma or something coming back to, to get us. And this was kind of broke off into this, this novel. Uh, but then we have, you know, the Wind Up Bird Chronicle. And, and I think many people, um, justifiably so, see this as Murakami's most important work. You know, I think he sees it like that, sees it like that. You know, you look at the comments he's made of it, you know, that basically he says he poured his heart and soul into this work, that after he'd written it, he'd, he had nothing left in the tank. It was just all out there. It was all there. Um, and that, you know, if this work has no meaning, then basically his life has no meaning. You know, he, he makes quite dramatic statements about it, but I think it's, it's very justified. You know, it's a work, obviously, that, you know, starts with a very personal story, you know, about a husband and a wife um, who have blind spots. You know, the husband doesn't really understand everything that's going on. You know, the, the family cat goes missing, then the wife goes missing, uh, and, you know, the, the husband has to go looking for his wife, you know. But this search for his wife, you know, takes him very deep into Japanese history, uh, into the kind of the trauma of the Second World War. And, you know, I, I think at its heart, you know, we see this this kind of thread of intergenerational trauma really coming through strongly in this work. You know, there's a lot of parallels between, you know, what this narrator is doing, you know, Toru as he, as he goes on this quest, uh, two older uh, gentlemen who were, you know, in the war, who were, saw death firsthand, who basically had everything stripped from them, who were thrown into wells and left to die. You know, Toru has to go into his own well. He has to kind of see what they saw in some sense. Uh, and he has to try and heal his own trauma to save his own marriage. Um, but he also has to try and heal the trauma of a whole generation. And so it's a very ambitious, you know, it's a very ambitious work from a, from a therapeutic perspective. And it, it gets to the heart of Murakami's relationship with his father. You know, um, it obviously is drawing on, on this emotional burden that he carried for a lot of his, his childhood and youth and, and young adulthood uh, and tries to bring it to some kind of completion, uh, to kind of complete something that, that couldn't be completed. And the reward of that is that you know, he, he then he has a chance of reconnecting with his wife, of saving his wife, of reconnecting with his wife. So it's not just something for the past. It's not just like uh, trying to save that generation, but it's 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 intergenerational. By by helping them, we can help ourselves, and we can have better human relationships. Um, and, and so I think it's you know Murakami I was probably around. It was in his forties at the time. You know, he always sees that as the time where a writer produces their most important work uh, and i think it's what he was trying to do to to really get to the heart of it and, and i think he feels like he did 
And and I think when you read his fiction as a whole, you sense that because the fiction that comes after the Wind Up Bird Chronicle, it feels different. Uh, first of all, you know, we start to move into a lot of younger protagonists. We start to, you know, look at, you know, young Kafka and Kafka on the shore or, you know, if it's Sputnik Sweetheart or um, After Dark, you know, we have a lot of young protagonists. And it's like Murakami felt that after he'd written this massive work and after he'd worked through this this trauma in his own life, like he was now ready to kind of pass on some of the lessons. And, and a lot of people don't like this. They kind of feel like Murakami becomes more didactic, like he's talking down to us or he's he's kind of, um, you know, showing us what to do. They, they like the early stuff where he's a bit more lost and doesn't know himself what to do. Um, but I think, you know, partly the, yeah, this comes out of, um, you know, 1995. It comes out of the, the Corby earthquake. It comes out of the OM attack. It comes out of this need, this responsibility he felt as he became a more senior writer in the Japanese literary scene to kind of start passing things on. And so I think when you're looking at Murakami's fiction from a therapeutic perspective, there really is the kind of the before uh, the Wind Up Bird Chronicle and, and after. You know, this is a, a turning point in his fiction. And I think it's because, you know, the two more personal traumas, you know, the personal trauma of with his father and and the trauma of the girlfriend who committed suicide, I think they find, if not a complete solution or resolution, they, they find a, a kind of a a, pass, a partial solution or resolution um, that is very healing for, for Murakami himself. I think he felt healed after... Uh, writing the Wind Up Bird Chronicle. So I think for him personally, he would say that, yeah, he felt like he had achieved something significant, something that he'd been trying to do for years and years, something that he'd been building up to for years and years. And so, you know, post that, after that, I think his questions changed a little bit. They were more like, okay, so now how do I apply what I have learned to Japanese society? How do I help younger people who are trying to navigate similar problems? You know, how do I deal with things like 311, like the Fukushima crisis, like like, like the Omatec, like the earthquake, these bigger traumas that affect all of us. How can my fiction, um, you know, approach those questions? And I think the reason why he felt qualified to do that was because of writing the Wind Up Bird Chronicle. I think he had just felt such a tremendous catharsis or such a tremendous release after writing that work uh, that he just felt ready to kind of try new things and to kind of take on a different perspective uh, as an author. That's absolutely interesting. Um, now, the last two chapters discuss individuation, and you consider this theme very important to Murakami. Uh, so how do you interpret this theme in his novels? Yeah, so, you know, Jung would basically say that, you know, individuation is making what is unconscious conscious, Um but there's these, I guess there's these levels to it, you know, and ultimately, you know, if you, if you read Jung, what Jung ultimately found was, you know, his own personal God, you know, an archetype of God that was inside him that he felt gave his life, you know, purpose and meaning. You know, we know that, you know, Jung was the, the son of a Christian pastor, uh, that he'd had these, you know, very traumatic dreams as a young man, and he'd kind of wrestled a lot with Christianity and, and, and eventually kind of left Christianity and, you know, established his psychotherapy. Uh, but he was searching for, for, you know, what we might call salvation, you know, something like that. 
um, and and you know through the unconscious and and looking into it. And I think Murakami is very similar in that sense that you know he was raised by a Buddhist grandfather. His his father was a part time Buddhist priest. You know he came from a a very religious family, but you know like Jung, he he left Buddhism. He doesn't consider himself a Buddhist today. Um, and so in order to live, you know, in order not to give in to nihilism, to kind of, to just give up on life altogether, which which for him is a, an important theme because he knows people who did end up there. He knows people who, and we know many Japanese writers have also ended up there, you know. And so I think for him, this is a very central, very important theme, you know, is how do you just stand up to the potential for meaninglessness and despair? Um, and for him, it's, you know, he's turned time and time again to the unconscious. Yeah, and this is what this process of individuation is about. It's about turning to the unconscious. It's about exploring what comes out of there. Um, you know, Jung had an idea that the, that the unconscious compensates, that it has, and that even leads us towards the new, the numinous or the, or the spiritual or something grand. You know, and, and Murakami maybe doesn't quite follow Jung all the way there, but he is searching for something that is, is is as basic. You know, sometimes when I read Murakami, you know, you kind of think, well, what, what is he really saying? What is he really offering? And, and sometimes, you know, I, I feel like he offers a kind of a secular Buddhism, you know, this idea that, you know, when he goes off to these other worlds, you know, we all know Murakami's fiction, we're going to, at some point, we're going to slip into another world. Um, and then we're going to come back again, you know. Um, but in this other world, you know, we know that time is a little bit vague. We know that memory, you know, he's searching for memories. He's searching for things to, to hold on to. But it, it becomes more and more, um, you know, vague, I think, this, this world that he's going into. And it's almost like, you know, he's preparing himself for death in some sense, you know, through these constant journeys to the other side. And yet, you know, what Murakami doesn't necessarily share, I think, with Buddhism is this idea of memory, that memory is so important to us, that, that it's the most precious thing, that it's a fuel that carries us through life, you know. And, and so for Murakami, you know, he's always going back into the past or going back into memories or going back into traumas to, to try and rescue something, some memory, something good, and to bring it back and to turn it into a story, you know. And this is the fuel for our lives. Um, and, you know, so he's searching for something inside himself that can sustain his life, you know, and this is individuation. Uh, and, and in the final chapters, you know, I, I kind of go through the ideas or the ways in which this starts to borrow explicitly from uh, alchemy, from this, the kind of the metaphors of alchemy that, that Jung wrote and wrote and wrote about, you know. Um, and, I, you know, some people will probably argue that this is uh, a negative in Murakami's fiction, that maybe he's turned too much towards Jung, too much towards these ideas that, that you know. And Murakami himself has always said, well, I don't read Jung and I don't read Kawai Hayao, who was, you know, his good friend, who he met many times and who introduced Jungian thought into Japan. He says, I don't read much of Kawai because I don't want to be overly influenced. You know, I just want to write good stories and I don't want to have a kind of a framework that shapes it all and 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 but but perhaps um you know my argument is that the the fiction is is very deeply influenced uh by the metaphors of alchemy you know alchemy kind of talks about different colors that we have to experience as we move towards you know turning lead into gold 
you know, the alchemists would work in their little laboratories and they would have these metals and they would apply mercury to it and they would do this and they would do that. And they were trying to make gold, but they always failed. You know, they never made the gold. And, you know, Jung says, well, that's like us. You know, that's what therapy is. It's like we're, we're trying to kind of create this something perfect, uh, but we never really get there. And yet we, we kind of go through these different transformations, you know, and I think what I see in Murakami's most recent fiction is he's pushing these transformations to what Jung would have said is kind of the end of it, this kind of individuation where I think we just feel more whole, we feel more complete because so much of what used to be unconscious is now conscious. It's come, you know, into our conscious mind and we just feel more whole and more complete. Um, and I kind of see that reaching its climax in Killing Commendatore. Uh, you know, this, what is at this point, you know, Murakami's most recent novel, um, you know, and I, I, I see him as very explicitly borrowing uh, from, from Jung. Now returning to where we started, um, this writing fiction for self-therapy, um, how would you summarize Murakami's purpose or the end goal in, in doing so? What is the self-therapy for? Yeah, I, I think it can depend on which thread we're talking about. Um, you know, I, I think in terms of trauma, you know, or melancholia, you know, these are things that yeah, we do have to kind of deal with at some point, you know, if people are dealing with very serious trauma in their life, you know, they can become disassociated from it, you know, and disassociation is a very big theme in Murakami's fiction. His characters always seem disassociated. They seem cut off from their selves. They seem cut off from their normal sense of reality and they go off and, and search for some kind of healing. And, you know, in, in that sense, you know, there is a need to kind of go back and to make what is unconscious conscious and to deal with that trauma and to kind of process it in some way and to come to some kind of peace uh, with it. You know, on the other hand, you know, I think there are aspects of self-therapy that are just never ending. You know, it's this idea that, you know, we've already mentioned that the gold, we never get the gold. The gold never eventuates, you know. But the, the process of trying to improve and trying to get better and trying to just find out what's in us, you know, I, I think this is an ongoing process that, you know, Murakami celebrates. You know, if we go to Murakami's fiction, you know, we have this idea of wind that, that runs all throughout his fiction. You know, his first novel is called Hear the Wind Sing. And we ask ourselves, well, what does this mean to hear the song of the wind? And in, in that early novel, it means all kinds of things. You know, sometimes, you know, he mentions the girlfriend who committed suicide, who hung herself from a tree and was blowing in the wind for two weeks. You know, another time he tells us about a writer who really influenced him called Derek Hartfield. And Hartfield wrote a novel about a young boy who got lost in a maze of wells on Mars and, and traveled in this maze for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years and then came out of this well and when he came out, the time had so much time had passed, and you know the wind comes and talks to him and says, you know, one day soon the sun is going to explode and it's all going to be meaningless, you know. And, and he says, did you learn anything from this? And you know, and the boy pulls out a revolver and shoots himself in the head. You know, very dark um, imagery. You know, that of of what does it mean to hear the wind sing? But there are other occasions in that you know, that early novel where Wynne has something positive, you know, his friend 
uh, a girl comes to him and says her life has been so terrible and she's you know had so many trials and so many problems and and you know this protagonist Boku says to her well you know it's it's just like our lives are like the wind you know but but you know winds change you know there's always hope you know things can always get better um, and then you know he talks about his friend Rat or Nezumi you know who goes um, when he's younger he goes out to a kind of a grave of a an old emperor and is sitting there. And as he sits there, he listens to the wind and he, he starts to feel connected to nature and to the universe and feels this, this oneness, you know? And so I think for Murakami, you know, to hear the wind sing means to listen to all of the songs of the wind. You know, some of them are very dark. Some of them are very terrible, but some of them are also hopeful, you know, and this advice, it repeats throughout Murakami's fiction. You find it in other novels, you know, it's right in, up to killing Commendatore as, as the you know protagonist is crawling through the dark and trying to make it you know survive, trying to be reborn, you know he hears his dead sister telling him you know hear the wind sing, listen to the wind. You know, you know Murakami has said that for him, you know he just wants to live his life like he runs his marathons. You know he wants people to think that you know I think the the phrase he said he wants on his tombstone is that. He never stopped running right up to the end. You know, he just wants to keep going, to keep enduring. Um, but beyond that, you know, I, I think, you know, so sometimes, you know, what the wind brings is very dark uh, and very tragic and very, um, very troubling for, for the protagonist and for Murakami himself. But sometimes it's also hopeful and it gives him some ray of hope. You know, and I think, you know, in one sense, I think we can hear the wind sing can mean you know, listen to your unconscious. This can be this journey of individuation is listen to yourself. And I think like Jung, perhaps Murakami has this sense of, you know, the answers being inside you, you know. Um, I was just reading a critic recently who was kind of referencing Bob Dylan, you know, the answers, my friend, are blowing in the wind. And Murakami references Bob Dylan quite a lot in his early fiction, you know, it kind of comes up time again. And this uh, critic was actually arguing that perhaps, you know, he even has some influence on the title. But to, to hear the wincing just means to listen, to keep listening to your unconscious, to something inside you that tells you that life is not nihilistic, it's not empty, that there is meaning, that there is potential for love. You know? and, and I think ultimately what self-therapy means in Murakami's fiction is love. It's about the ability to get past your trauma, to find love, and to love another human being, and to love future generations. You know, and and I think for Murakami that was difficult. I think because of his relationship with his parents, because the the decades they spent not talking to each other, uh, because of the young people he'd known who found no meaning in life, or or got to a point where they they couldn't see a, a reason to go on, who who took their own lives. This is a very basic and a very fundamental question for him. You know, but I think as he's continued to listen to the wind over his career, you know, I, I think he's probably found his answer in love. Um, and love is perhaps the true healing power. Um, and I think that's something that he wants to express through his fiction. That's such a great point to end our conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And for our listeners who are interested in learning more about the self-therapy in Murakami's novels, and also for Murakami's fans, make sure to check out this new book, Haruki Murakami and the Search for Self-Therapy, Stories from the Second Basement by Jonathan Dell. Currently available in hardback, paperback, and ebook. 
This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. I will see you next time.